Hello everyone, welcome to the York College Department of Sport Management and Media Alumni Podcast Series. I'm Dr. Mike Mudrick, Associate Professor of Sport Management and Media. Today I'm here with Andrew Heston, Manager of Ticket Operations and Services with the Philadelphia Phillies. Andrew is a 2006 Sport Management graduate of York College and is a former Spartan soccer player. We look forward to hearing what he has to say about the uniqueness of working in sport, the challenges of working in sport during a pandemic, and also what advice he has for current students in our program. I hope you enjoy. First off, Andrew, could you provide us with a synopsis of your background, where you're from, how did that lead you to get to York College, and then obviously the sport management program at York College? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a place called Upper Township, which is just outside of Ocean City, New Jersey. Grew up playing sports, baseball and soccer being my main two sports. So I've always been interested in the business side as well as the playing side of it. Just kind of drawn to York College twofold. Close family friend attended York prior to me going there, went out to visit, had a good experience, put it on my radar. And then from there was also contacted by the men's soccer coach and, and was recruited, which kind of finalized everything and, and me heading to York College. Once I got there, I went in undecided, wasn't really sure, knew it was probably going to be towards the business side. Luckily, you know, you're there kind of two weeks prior with preseason for soccer, two and a half weeks. So you get to hear a little bit about people's experiences from the upperclassmen once you're in that preseason. And, and with that, you know, I kind of got a good understanding that a few of them were in the sport management program and kind of drove me in that direction once I heard a little bit more about it. What did you want to do when you when you first enrolled in sport management? I assume, you know, most of our students, it's, I want to work in sport, but I'm not totally sure I'll figure it out. Did you know right away or what, did you have an initial career aspiration when you started? You know, initially uh, the grand plan was kind of, maybe a life director. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the scheduling side. I saw a little bit of that with uh, helping my father schedule some soccer tournaments, some youth soccer tournaments. So initially, I think going into and declaring as a sport management major, that was my idea. Then, you know, taking some classes, learning more about the, the business admin side and things like that kind of steered me a little bit away from that. But I'm also going to keep the door open in, in the future. I still stay active refereeing college soccer. So, you know, I still see that college side. But yeah, initially what drew me to it was potential of a athletic director and staying on the education side. You obviously graduate from your college. Where did you do your final semester internship at? You know, maybe this isn't the greatest for current students, but I feel like I took the path less traveled. The requirements for the internship were above where I was at. So I did a a minor in, I think it was asset protection um, and didn't actually do an internship my senior year. Looking back on it, it's something that would have been extremely helpful. And I think that any current student in this program should be doing internships probably every summer once they're once they're in that idea that sport is where they want to be is probably uh, where they should go. I ended up doing an internship after I graduated 
with the Eagles on their day of game staff as a customer service rep. And that really kind of got my foot in the door, got my feet wet. And I had the smaller experiences while in college, but nothing, no big internship. And so you were able to parlay that Eagles experience eventually into your position with the Philadelphia Phillies? Yeah, so it's all about the conversations that you have. So was able to talk to some people there during my four or five months, had good, meaningful conversations. And then it's also a little bit of right place, right time, kind of having those conversations. What ultimately led to my interview at the Phillies was my summer job, you know, growing up in Ocean City, tourism is a big thing. So summer months are very busy. I worked at a pancake house for, you know, nine years, was very close with the owner. The owner had season tickets with the Phillies, had season tickets with the Eagles. Um, so he had some connections and, and I was able to talk to him. He submitted my resume to his, his rep at the Phillies. And um, I was able to land that into an interview. It, it was one of those things where had graduated. So I had the time um, to commit to it. I think I had my interview mid-December and was hired early January. So it was a pretty quick turnaround time. And at that point, they offer a paid internship, which is great because I know that sometimes that's a very big thing for for me. I mean, part of the reason I couldn't do the summer internships is because I needed the money to make to stay afloat in college and pay for that. So um, the fact that the Phillies had a paid internship was huge. And again, it was kind of the right place, right time. It was January of 2007 that I started my internship, which is right around um, the Phillies run in the playoffs. That was the first year we we captured the uh, division on the last day of the season that year. So we were extremely busy and it, it helped. So what was your position on that initial internship? So it was in our ticket services department, answering phone calls for customer service issues, doing single game ticket sales, and just general troubleshooting of anything Phillies. Once we kind of got into that, um, there was another need. And I the majority of my internship in that 2007 year was in our ticket vault, which is accounts payable type accounting side. So I think I moved over into that position in about April of the 2007 season. It was in it until uh, the end of that year. So started with general sales and then moved over towards an accounting side for that first year internship. How has that led you to your current position? Well, I would say it's part of the fact that in that accounting type internship, you get a good base as far as what's going on ticket sales wise, customer service wise, and the operation side as well. So right now, my current title is manager of ticket operations and services. All of that was just a base to kind of get me where I'm at now, learning how to deal with customers at the ticket windows, learning how to de-escalate a situation where somebody doesn't have tickets that they thought they had that they paid somebody else for. And that's kind of, initially it was all about ticket printing, payments, things like that. And now we've evolved into mobile ticketing, obviously, um, accepting PayPal and Google Pay and Apple Pay and things like that. So just try to hone skills that will help me down the road. In season, what's a day in the life of one Andrew Heston like? So the hours are long. In season, teams home, 
for a homestand, usually working about a 10 hour day, probably arrive about 9.30, 10 a.m., usually here till about 9 p.m. Typical day, as soon as I, as soon as I walk in, we're, uh, we're running reports to find out sales for that day, see if we need to staff up or staff down based on what the numbers look like. After that, we're, our phones are on, so our ticket service reps are answering them. I help troubleshoot any questions that they have. Nowadays, it's troubleshooting the MLB Ballpark app, which I help oversee and make sure that we're up to date on everything there as far as ticket backs, ticket language, terms and conditions, everything like that. So that's kind of the middle of the day. I would say probably around 3.30 is when we start getting ready for the game. Our gates usually open about 90 minutes before game time. So 7.05 game, gates would open about 5.35. We start seeing crowds for those games. If it's a weekend, 7 o'clock game, they'll start coming in the parking lots 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, we do see some ticket window sales there. Obviously, they've gone down quite a bit since uh, most people are purchasing ahead of time. And we did see with the limited capacity that we had to begin 2021, almost all sales were occurring seven to nine days in advance of the game. Once we opened to full capacity and things were kind of back to normal where seating pods weren't a thing, that number did decrease where we saw a normal three to four days before the game was where most purchases were occurring. So then, you know, once, once our ticket windows are open, I'm helping manage them. Any issues that they have, they're coming to see me. We're making sure all our ticket sellers have their money ready to go, that they know what kind of promotions are going on that day. And then really from once, once gates open until the game's official in the fifth inning, I'm just kind of on call wherever they need me to troubleshoot any issues that may arise. So you mentioned, obviously, a, a lesser amount of walk-up buyers um, in the past year. With that said, you also mentioned that the strong majority of folks are getting their tickets digitally and using the MLB Ballpark app. How does that work? I'm just curious about. Like, So if I go and get a walk-up, am I... Am I getting it transferred to the app, even though I'm directly buying it from you at a window, or am I actually getting a physical ticket? So as of right now, this past season, 2021, any window sale, you were actually getting a physical ticket. We are currently in the process of trying to figure out a way to make it as quick to make that a mobile ticket. Um, but I think the technology just isn't quite there yet. Um, and the only reason I say that is because with a window sale and to then have it be a mobile ticket, we need to collect customers' email address, name, billing address, and all of that takes a little bit longer at a window sale when you want that to be a quick sale. So we're trying to come up with some ways right now that that can be a mobile delivery, um, but we're not quite there yet. So yes, they are receiving a physical ticket at the window currently. That makes sense. You also mentioned how before you were allowed to fully open up that seats were grouped into pods. Can you just talk about from your end what that decision-making process was like? Obviously, that's a, you know, a crisis situation that the team is in and difficult decisions have to be made. And you know, you've got different stakeholders involved in that decision-making process, whether it be the city, the state, Major League Baseball. From your inside perspective, you know, within the organization, 
how did that process all uh, evolve and, and how was it you know, communicated? Curious, just from an insider's perspective, how that all unfolded. Yeah, so that was, it was a topic that as soon as we kind of shut down in March of 2020, the wheels were already grinding as far as will we be allowed to have fans? If we are allowed to have fans, do they have to be separated? What does that look like? So it was a conversation that we were having kind of as soon as we knew that most of the season was going to be impacted in 2020. Then we obviously found out that the entire season was going to be without fans. So I would say probably in about September of 2020 is when we went to work on building the back of the house ticket operation side in our ticketing system was a manifest that spaced everybody six feet apart. And then it was ever changing based on things that you mentioned. At first, MLB said, all right, we want you to follow whatever the state's doing. Okay, that's fine. We can do that. And then the state decided that, all right, well, each city is going to have or each township or municipality is going to have their own set of rules. So based on the fact that we're in a major metropolitan city, we had to follow what the city of Philadelphia was doing, which at the time was a little bit more strict than some of the other cities that we had seen. And, and a lot of it too is, you know, we had calls with other teams to find out what they were doing. So as much as it is like we're one, you know, organization as the Phillies, we do talk to other teams quite often and kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was ever changing. I think the final decision to start having fans and seating them in pods and that the pods would need to be six feet apart, it probably occurred in February of, of this year. And then we went on sale very quickly, maybe a week turnaround time, which is, which is quick for us. Um, and starting to sell those once we knew that we were actually going to be allowed to have, I think at first it was 11% of our full capacity. So for, for us, that was about seven to 8,000 seats in a 43,000 seat ballpark. So yeah, I mean, it was, like you said, crisis management, because every day information was changing. We'd come in, we'd measure the distance between seats, make sure that we were, were on the mark. Um, we even had to measure the distance, you know, between rows and the rake that we had in uh, some of those elevated levels. And then we also, it's crazy, but it's one of the things that business analytics has helped with. We enlisted our business analytics side. They were able to write a program that kind of gave us an idea of, hey, we want to sit seats six feet apart. We want to not seat anybody on an aisle and we want to stagger rows. So they were able to take, let's say we have one section, it's got 300 seats in it and give us our best percentage of selling based on what those seating pods could be. Yeah, because it definitely varies by section because of the unique design. And that's the thing that makes baseball so special is the unique design of ballparks. It's not like other facilities where traditionally, you know, when you think about a basketball a hockey arena, they're all pretty much the same in terms of, 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 of the sections, but you know, baseball, a little bit football, but mainly baseball, there's a little bit more aesthetics. There's, there's, there's creativity in how it's designed. So it's, it's not going to be that, Hey, what we have for section 105 is going to be the same in section 125 because of how, you know, asymmetrical the ballpark is. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, we do have some that are, are very rectangular and then we have others that are, you know, 
like a trapezoid. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up about communicating with other organizations, because that's something we talk about with our students, uh, just in general about the sport industry. But I know we cover it in a sport marketing class that one of the things that makes the sport product unique is even though two teams are competing against each other, you're competing against the Mets and the Braves and the Nationals, you're also on the same team and that you're a part of Major League Baseball and you're collaborating on you know, rule changes, you're collaborating on issues that are going to impact everyone. And so what, what might work for one organization, if it works for another organization, that's good for the game. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's not like Coke and Pepsi where they're, they're not going to be sharing the best practices. You absolutely are going to see that in sport. Yeah. And we, we see it all the time, you know, prior, prior to COVID, we would have annual meetings kind of in November after uh, the world series was over and you get to collaborate with, with all the teams, as well as, you know, major league baseball's head office. So it, it is great. And you're right. You're not necessarily competing against each other in the back office. Obviously you are on the field, but um, everybody is kind of learning from each other and seeing what works and what doesn't work. So in our classes, we talk often about how sport and entertainment is not recession proof. And you've mentioned you went the entire 2020 season without having any fans at games. How were you able to make it to 2021 with that loss of revenue? Did you shift toward trying to add more value to sponsorships? Because you also still have to fulfill those contracts. How did that all unfold from your perspective? Yeah, it was, um, it was obviously very unique. We, we tried to stay engaged as much as possible with our fans, with our season ticket base, virtual Zoom happy hours where we bring in some alumni, invite them to, to have pizza with us, have a coffee and conversations like York does also. Um, but they were things that we were able to try to do to keep our fan base engaged while there was no baseball. Um, from the sponsorship side, I believe that they tried to change. We do some sponsorships for obviously commercials, TV, radio spots. They tried to transfer some of those into the virtual Zoom meetings and say it was sponsored by Nemours Children's Hospital, something like that. Um, so I think that that's kind of how they were able to transfer some of their sponsorship value. Then you would also do, I mean, the Philly Fanatic is a big mascot, does a ton of appearances. He had to go virtual just because they weren't, they weren't allowed to do any sort of in-person appearances. And I think some of the sponsorship deals, I mean, not, not knowing a ton about it, but I think some of them were probably just punted to the following season where said, hey, we're going to roll everything over. It's going to be like 2020 didn't happen. We did that with some of our sweet holders and it, it seemed to work out. But what we tried to do is stay in contact with everyone. You know, when we first shut down, we kind of gave two to three weeks to try to figure out what was going on. And then we just gave them a phone call, see how their family's doing, see how they're making out. Nothing to do with baseball, but just to stay in contact with them and see what was going on. And I think it was very helpful. Once we kind of had an idea on where we were going and what was going to happen with the 2020 season, I think we provided an update maybe about once every month. And that seemed to work for our fan base. I know there were some fan bases that were, or some teams that were doing once every two weeks. There were others that were doing once every three months. So I think for us, our sweet spot was like once a month, try to stay in contact with them and send something. Okay. So you also have already mentioned this in terms of, of the seating arrangements and devising appropriate seating, but it relates to the concept of, 
of analytics. And obviously, analytics are, are very prevalent in, in any business venture today, sport or non-sport. You know, we tell our students all the time that, you know, we want to use data to drive our decision making. And while that's not going to guarantee success, you know, evidence-based decision making is going to increase the likelihood uh, that a wise strategy uh, is going to be offered. Can you talk about how in your job that's practiced? So you gave us an example in terms of maximizing seeding when you were in those pods. What are some other examples in which you are using numbers and data to drive your decision-making, whether it's a, you know, a new initiative, a promotion, something of that nature? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the big ones is just like airlines, we've instituted, I guess, probably in the last two to three years, dynamic pricing, where you know, none of our prices are necessarily published right off the bat. It's more like, hey, this is the section you're buying. Once you put it in your cart, that's the price that they see. If somebody goes in a day later, it's possible that that price is going to change. So again, we've enlisted our business analytics department, and we've come up with some um, predictive models that take into account weather from the previous year, by current buying behavior, if it's a hot game, you know, we've sold 300 tickets today for that specific game. What else, what else do we include in that? I mean, opponent, day of the week, um, things like that. So we use that predictive model to then decide where we want to price certain areas, certain games. Um, and it's been helpful. So that's one example. Uh, the other side that we use those numbers um, in the ballpark app, we have the ability to send push notifications or inbox notifications. We sent some throughout the year, kind of uh, know before you go, once we had like the mask mandate um, and, and things like that. And we were able to use the numbers from that on an open rate and find out who's opening, who has uh, the push notifications turned on, and if we're really getting to our targeted audience. Um, so those numbers were super helpful to us. And throughout the year, I think we sent a total of uh, 100 and some push notifications. Um, and our open rate was pretty high uh, as far as push notifications. I think we were in the 35% range, which I think Apple's average is about, I don't know, 20%, I think. So again, that's, that's using numbers to help stay in contact and, and understand what's going on. Even concessions, I assume you you could track, you know, what are the most popular items and that's going to impact your marketing strategies, whether it be to offer more of that, whether it be to take things off of the menu, food and beverage wise, I'm sure you could look at you know, what gates are most popular in terms of people coming in and do we need to, you know, change the flow? I, I assume that all comes into play with, with your use of analytics as, as well. It does. I mean, our department for the business analytics side is great. They come up with uh, reports that we haven't even thought of yet. And one of them this year that they rolled out that they were able to do real time going back to concession is we host a dollar dog night. And uh, they were able to put an actual hot dog counter up on the uh, scoreboard to see how many were being sold in real time. And again, they're getting that data directly from the concessions point of sale. They're putting it into their uh, their data tables and, and then outputting it into something that looks fan friendly, which uh, is, is pretty funny and, and pretty cool. It allows fans to be 
feel like they're more a part of it. Yeah, they're a part of like the cheering and, and all that that goes on in the game, but like they are directly a part of, of that hot dog consumption. So there's there's a little bit of, of, of active engagement there too, knowing that they were a part of that. Like, yeah, sometimes you see fans get excited when they see like the amount of tickets sold when they put that up there because they were a part of it. But, you know, I think something unique like that is is different. And, and you know, even little things like that can go a long way just to make feel make fans feel like, uh, they're a more active participant at that sporting event. Yeah, it definitely keeps them engaged. And then going back to kind of your sponsor question on adding value, our Dollar Dog Night is, is sponsored by Hatfield. So adding the value of that being an extra thing on the scoreboard, they loved it. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a win on everybody's account. Any other noticeable trends that you're seeing in the sport industry as a whole? It doesn't necessarily have to be Major League Baseball, but something that our students should be cognizant of in terms of trends moving forward? Um, I mean, part of it is how, for Major League Baseball at least, is, is how to keep the fan engaged. I mean, games have gotten longer, um, probably to the detriment of the game. Um, so it's, it's trying to figure out ways to keep fans engaged, hot dog tracker being one of them, keeps them engaged. Um, some of the other trends, I mean, things that we've done around our ballpark where a fans maybe not sitting for nine innings straight. Um, so I think it was going into the 2019 season, we took our entire right field section behind the seats and converted it to a mini wiffle ball field. Um, it also includes a rock climbing wall, a hot dog launcher, um, and a, a pitching cage. So it's, we created a space where it's more of a hangout and a casual area to come to. Yeah, there's a baseball game going on, but there's other things as well. And I think that's certainly helped keep the fans kind of upbeat and uh, knowing that they don't have to necessarily sit for nine innings. Those are some of the trends we've seen because there's other ballparks that have added things like that. I think the Nationals have an area that's kind of like their scoreboard porch area, which is more of a casual lounge, you know, outdoor furniture, things like that, where you can sit and watch a game in a comfortable couch rather than necessarily having to sit in a uh, small seat. But those are, the, those are kind of some of the trends that I've seen where you're trying to, I guess, engage the fan Yes, there's baseball going on, but there's other things to do within the ballpark. And it speaks to the idea that going to a sporting event is an overall experience. It also lends credence to, you know, something we'll talk about in sport marketing that you can't just rely on wins in order to to drive attendance. Um, Most sport teams oscillate in terms of of their success, you know, on the field, on the court, whatever the, the, the sport is. But we can't just rely on winning to fill the seats. That would be a myopic viewpoint to take. Um, and so when you make it more about the overall experience, if you want fans to come for the experience, not purely because your team is winning, because th- that's going to be more stable over the long, long term that they're coming for the overall collective experience. I'm assuming you would agree with that. I would hundred percent agree with that. Obviously winning helps everything, but you're right. The experience is really what they're coming for. So as we close out this conversation, I'm going to transition a little bit back to um, some questions for professional development purposes for our students. 
So what's something that you look for in prospective employees that you think current students should keep in mind? So you mentioned obviously like knowing trends within the industry and specifically um, how to sell the experience would be something that, you know, from a knowledge standpoint will be beneficial for students. But, you know, what are some things maybe from like a soft skill or even a hard skills perspective that, that you think uh, students must keep in mind as they're, they're trying to navigate their way into this industry? Yeah, so I mean, something that wasn't necessarily prevalent when I was in school was building your brand. Um, obviously, with social media as, as large as it is now, it's you know making sure your LinkedIn's updated. It's making sure that there's no pictures really on the internet that are going to be incriminating or that an employer might look at. I mean, these are all things that prospect employers could look at. Another big thing is it's kind of strange, but I, I like to see a professional dressed person when they come for an interview. You know, no sneakers. I have seen I have seen that in an interviewee before. So like those are kind of some big things. The other thing too is just have the conversation. You're selling yourself, but but be relaxed about it. I understand that it's kind of a nervous time when you're meeting with somebody that, you know, is a potential employer, but be relaxed, have faith and have confidence in in your brand is, is certainly helpful. What about in terms of when they if you were to get an intern? So what are some things that what are some little things that that you've noticed from perhaps even former interns that little things that students can master that can turn that internship into an increased likelihood to, to get an offer for a full-time job? Um, you know, we always say, yeah, obviously the attire is important. You know, the attire is certainly important for, for to go for an interview, but attire being imp- important um, on a consistent basis when you're, you know, working at that, that organization. Um, you know, little things like coming in early, staying late. What are some things that you've, you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been a little bit of change as far as office, office culture um, in the sense that, you know, you have more that are work from home now, some more remote working. Us here at the Phillies, we still like the in-person stuff. The collaboration's better. It seems to be that more ideas are bouncing off of people when you're in an office setting. Organization skills are also a big thing. In the last few years, we've also started to use some CRM software. So kind of knowing that side is going to be helpful. It'll help you stand out a little bit. And and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, expert knowledge of it, but, you know, a little bit of knowledge of uh, the CRM type software. Um, Again, that was probably one of my downfalls of, of not having an internship while I was in college is I came in and I didn't know anything as far as ticketing software. I had a general knowledge of, you know, Microsoft products, but students now should have working knowledge of all of that. Um, and that's what we'd be looking at for an intern. Uh, another question I'd like to ask, obviously, that you're typically on the other side interviewing people, specifically students who are in college, you know, looking for internships. Is there one question that you've noticed that students tend to struggle with the most? Or on the flip side, is there something that you notice on, I'm not trying to be Mr. Negative here, but is there something you notice with resumes and cover letters that you receive that's one common weakness that you think your college students should be aware of so that they can 
you know, not fall for that trap? On that side, I'm not sure if there's really anything that I've noticed recently that would constitute, you know, looking bad on a resume. But I always found, I always found the question of, you know, what are some successes that you've had in, in your life and what are some failures is really what are the failures and how you were able to overcome them? Sometimes that's what we're looking for. We want to know how they're going to come out of that, what kind of stressful situation they were in and how they were able to recover from it. Those are always good skills and good talking points to know in an interview. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because that speaks a lot to who that individual is as a person. I'm sure most folks you know, in a, in a resume and a cover letter and also speaking points in an interview, you know, are talking about how much they're a hard worker. They're talking about how, you know, skilled they are in certain areas. And, and that might say a little bit about who they are as a person, but to be able to articulate that you're telling a story about you as a person. And, and it's also not just a matter of, is this person going to be a, a, a good uh, candidate, you know, specifically to fulfill the job description but can they fit in with our culture? Like, is this a person we want to work with? We need to know a little bit more about who they are as an individual. Yep. Their character, you know, their makeup. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, uh, that's all the questions for uh, today's session of our York College of Pennsylvania Sport Management Alumni Podcast. I really want to thank you for joining us today. Um, some really insightful remarks about, you know, what you experienced um, in Major League Baseball in particular in the context of the pandemic, but also in terms of providing some uh, wisdom for uh, future sport management employees, hopefully. So we definitely wish you the best of luck with this 2021 off season. And hopefully that carries over into a, a very positive and successful 2022 season with the team. And so uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us today. Thank you very much. I had a great time and, uh, Look forward to doing it again soon. Absolutely. And just if students want to, you know, follow up and communicate with you, would you be amenable to sharing your email address with us? Absolutely. It's um, A Heston, H-E-S-T-O-N at phillies.com. Okay. Well, Andrew, thanks again. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll definitely talk down the road and Hopefully the uh, sport management students and sport media students can have another great opportunity to come down to the ballpark in the near future and they can meet you in person. We look forward to it. Once again, I want to thank Andrew Heston for joining us today. He provided some great explanations on how the Phillies were able to navigate through the pandemic, the uniqueness of sport and how teams collaborate with each other, how teams use data to make prudent business decisions, but also how aspiring sport management students can cultivate a, a positive brand. I mean, these are things that you know, we try to cover as consistently as possible in our curriculum. And um, so it was good to hear that it is being uh, utilized and implemented in the industry. Uh, I definitely encourage all to uh, reach out and connect with Andrew. He'd be a great resource. And I wanna thank you for listening to this edition of our York College of Pennsylvania Sport Management and Media Alumni Podcast. Until next time, take care.